Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks, and discussions, Visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Well, thank you all for coming. And the first thing I wanted to say is that if you told me as a teenager that I would be sitting here 40 years on, chairing a debate like this, and that a 1,000 people would want to come listen to it, I'd have been astonished. Because I thought the whole issue would be done and dusted long before now. And that's because I grew up with a mother who was a full-time academic and the mother of five children. And all through my childhood, it didn't occur to me that people would not take women and their brains absolutely seriously. We were always being told by my mother just to get on with playing because she was writing her essay on, or, or doing her lecture on Max and, Marx and Weber and we were not to interrupt. So I grew up thinking women's intellect was a really important thing. And although I went on in my childhood then to be in the first year of girls in a boys' school, where in week one... The Latin master, dressed in his black gown and his mortarboard, stopped and addressed the ranks of girls waiting to go into a classroom and hissed at us with sheer malevolence. None of you will learn Latin because none of you have the intellectual capacity to grasp it. (laughs) I went on to become a journalist and I joined the BBC newsroom at a time when there were very few women, when in my first week... One of the editors took me out to lunch and proceeded to seethe about the fact that one of the few senior women in the newsroom had just come back to work after having a baby. And he said, why is she coming back to work if she's had a child? I mean, my wife is at home. All the senior men in the newsroom have their wives at home. Who does she think she is? That was the way things were 30 years ago. And I thought that these were the last dying gasps of a power structure that was just on its way out. As women flooded into the universities, as women went into the newsrooms, I thought we would just naturally take the tide with us. I didn't even worry about it. I was sorry for these people. And had you told me that I'd be sitting here now, that I'd have come this morning, for instance, from my wonderful liberal newspaper, The Times, where they really try to promote women, where the deputy editor is a woman, the head of home news is a woman, and yet... I sit and lead a conference this morning, and there are seven men and two women present. I've just come from a tech conference this afternoon where 90% of the men, 90% of the people at it were men. Only a quarter of MPs are women, 5% of the FTSE are women. Then I think it's absolutely astonishing that we're still in this position. And what this means is that, obviously, the differences in our society between the sexes are much more profound much more deep-seated than I understood as a child. And the interesting question is why this is so and what can we do about it? 
And we've got a fantastic panel here tonight, um, but I'm particularly pleased to welcome, because she's a rare visitor to our shores, Anne-Marie Slaughter, who became an international sensation three years ago. Not necessarily because of her extraordinarily high-powered job in the White House, which was policy planning for the Foreign Affairs Department, but because she wrote an article for The Atlantic magazine called Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And it remains the biggest single hit on The Atlantic website. This is clearly an issue which troubles all women who are attempting to enter the workplace and work out what their lives are about. So we're going to hear from all our panel in turn tonight, but I'd like to start off by introducing Anne-Marie, who's going to talk about the state of feminism today. Thank you. Thank you. So I have to start by saying I agreed with everything you said, including when I graduated from college in 1980 and law school in 1985. My husband and I got married and simply assumed that certainly by 1995 or 2005 or 2015, given the numbers of intelligent women who are already graduating, this problem would be solved. So the state of feminism today, I think it is being renewed and redefined. And I am going to speak more from the American perspective, but to some extent the, uh, the British perspective, although in some ways Britain is ahead of the United States. In others, it's, it's behind. So renewed. Renewed precisely because yet another generation of women has discovered uh, that no, this has not been fixed, that in fact, although they were told when they're growing up they can do absolutely anything and they are equal with boys, and if anything, they are outpacing boys uh, in school uh, and in graduate school, and I say I'm a feminist by day and a worried mother of boys by night, uh, and my boys sort of assume that it's the natural state of the world that the girls are smarter than they are in school, which the feminist in me loves and the uh, mother does not. Uh, so a new generation's discovered, notwithstanding all of this, we're still stuck. We're stuck at 20% women in a good industry, and in a bad industry, 10%, even 5%. That is, I think, what Sheryl Sandberg tapped into with Lean In and other people writing books saying, wait a minute, you know, we've got to, we need a new surge of feminism. That's part of what my article tr uh, triggered, the sort of renewed efforts to get women's on boards, uh, to do what I call confidence feminism, right, to teach women how to act like men. Uh, and to teach women how to act like men and ask for what they want and push themselves forward. So that's being renewed. I also think feminism is being redefined. Well, actually, if I'm honest, I'm trying to redefine it. <laughs> but let's put it in the, in the passive uh, uh, voice, uh, which is to say that I think if we're going to get to full equality between men and women, which is really the goal, right? That's, that's what we want. We want full equality between men and women. Then we have to focus less on advancing women to top jobs and more on valuing the work that women have traditionally done, the work of care, the work of investing in other people and feeling as much pride when they succeed as when you succeed, when you're raising children or investing in, in students or mentoring people, or at the other end of life when you are in trying to ensure that people you love and who cared for you have their very best day every day. And if we value that work, 
And we value it as individuals, as care is a huge part of who we are and we grow when we do invest in others, just as when we invest in ourselves. When we make room for care in the workplace, we assume this is a natural part of all human lives and we are simply going to have to, to accommodate it at different times in different workers' lives, but that that's a condition for everyone. And when nationally we invest in an infrastructure of care just as much as we invest in the infrastructure of competition that we know is necessary for a healthy economy and society. So we need to change the lens. We need to focus on valuing not just women for what they can do to be like men and continue to value men, but to value the traditional work of women and, and we'll talk about this, that means valuing it when men do it and assuming that men will do as much care in the home as we now expect women to bring in as much income in the office. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. And now for a historical perspective, we're going to turn to the prize-winning historian Amanda Foreman, who wrote the best-selling book, Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, which won the Whitbread Prize. And more recently, she presented the acclaimed BBC documentary series, The Ascent of Woman, which charted our rise over the past 10,000 years. Please welcome Amanda Foreman. I think that Anne-Marie has got to the heart of the matter, which is how do we redefine feminism for the future? And it reminds me of a, a well-known joke that some of you probably already do know, which is, uh, how many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, none. It's not the light bulb that needs changing. <laughs> and the the point about that is that in order to redefine the future, you need to know your history. Because if you don't know it, then others will redefine your history for you. And I'll give you an example. The, the idea of patriarchy and the idea that women have always been the second sex, is that true? Well, the answer is no. In fact, patriarchy is very much the new kid on the block. If you go back to only 8,000 BC and you look at the oldest town that we know of, 8,000, that's not very long ago in the great template of humanity. In 8,000 BC, there's a town, it was called, it is called Chattahuuk in Turkey. It had about 10,000 inhabitants. And what we know from that town is that men and women did the same work in the same place. They ate the same diet they were buried in the same place and in the same way. So that then, at the dawn of civilization, you have gender equality. And what happened next came many thousands of years later. And what that tells us is that patriarchy is human-made. And what can be made can be unmade. Thank you very much. Our next speaker, Helena Cronin, is the Darwinian philosopher at the London School of Economics, and she's a leading expert on the evolutionary understanding of sex differences. And she wrote the best-selling book, The Ant and the Peacock, Altruism and Sexual Selection, which is one of the New York Times' nine best books of the year. Helena, please give us your perspective. Thank you. 
Now, why in medicine are men from surgery and women from pediatrics? In law, men from corporate, women from family specialties. Why are the professions as a whole split as they are nowadays, 50-50, male-female, but most professions and the specialties within them, typically men's or women's? Why men at the top? Why, though the sexes are equally intelligent, are there different male-female distributions at all? Why do women but not men, feel most satisfied with part-time work? Why the pay gap? And why are such patterns universal, transcending countries and cultures? The answer, according to current feminism, is anti-female bias and barriers. But that can't be the whole story. Here's why. Two things. First... The science of sex differences. Evolved male-female differences in interests and temperaments give rise to different life priorities, such as, do you prefer to work with people or things? Do you favor planability or do you relish risk? Second, organizational analysis of the professions. Different kinds of work intrinsically dictate different needs. A brain surgeon might meet unexpected difficulties, a lawyer work all night on a client deadline. It's not arbitrary that they can't get home for dinner. Now, together, these two insights provide an immensely powerful framework, both explanatory and predictive. You can do the following, and we've done it in our research. Put in any data from any profession in any country at any period, and the hitherto elusive answers to those perennial questions that I just asked, and more, will be revealed. Feminism should take that science seriously. Thank you for that challenge to feminism. And now Daniel Glazer, who is a neuroscientist and is director of the Science Gallery at King's College London. Will you all please welcome Daniel? I hope as the only male on the panel, I'm not the pantomime villain. But um, I, th- <laughs> I thought I would do a quick experiment in, in my opening bit just to prove a point I want to make. And the point I want to make to you uh, is that while we do recognise differences in what women do and men do and where they're found in terms of professions and so on, uh, one of the biggest challenges which I think we have to overcome if the feminist project is to succeed is differences of how they are seen. So the difference between the way that women and men are seen. And I'm going to claim that those differences, the different seeing, doesn't depend so much on whether it's the man or the woman doing the seeing. It's about whether they're looking at a man or a woman. So what I want to prove to you with a quick experiment is that what you are seeing changes what you hear. And to do this, I'm going to discriminate slightly against those of you in the back of the hall because uh, I'm going to do an experiment which requires you to look very carefully at my lips. And those without binoculars or good eyesight in the back won't be able to. Um, What I've done is to connect a, a device up here that's going to amplify my voice. And I'm going to make some sounds. And I'm going to ask you just by a show of hands what you hear from the sounds that I'm making. Okay? Is that clear? So you'll hear some sounds, and I'm going to ask you what the sounds are. Ba, ba. Ba, ba. Ba, 
八，八，八。If you heard da da, put your hands up now. Okay, quite a few in the front. If you heard ba ba, put your hands up now. If you heard something in between da and ba, or if you thought it changed as the speech went on, yeah, changed as the speech went on. Very good. So the experiment is proved because.、Um, What I played you was a recording I made earlier in the office of me going ba 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 ba. So the sound was completely constant. But those of you that could see my lips moving heard something different. Okay, which is why those in the front there was a smattering of difference. And you can do this. It's called the McGurk illusion, and it's a very powerful example of cross-modal perception. Okay, so what you see changes how you hear. And I think this is an unrecognised problem. In how women are perceived in public, I was the last thing I'll say. I was reading a fascinating article last week、uh, from the Washington Post.、Uh, Alexandra Petrie wrote, and she imagined the following thing. She came up with a problem which I'm sure many of us are familiar with. A woman in a meeting will say something simple like, "I don't agree with you," and、uh, everyone else in the meeting goes, "Whoa! Why are you so aggressive? You know, hey, calm down, lady. We're all on the same team." And、uh, in fact, to combat this,、uh, she came up with a number of key statements from、uh, rhetoric and philosophy, and she rewrote them in the way that a woman. Would have to say them in order not to be perceived as aggressive. So I'll give you a couple. Give me liberty or give me death was the original one, as a man might say it. To be perceived as non-aggressive, a woman would have to say, "Dave, if I could just, I just feel really like if we had liberty, it would be terrific. And the alternative would just be awful, you know. I mean, that's just how it strikes me. I, I, I don't know for sure. So <laughs> the kinds of perceptual differences that." <laughs> Now, the differences that we're talking about are cultural, my friends. They do not arise in the womb,、uh, and they are not determined by biology. But they, we see differently because we are enculturated to see differently. This isn't a re- red-green question. It's about how we were brought up. But we do need to think about these different perceptions. And notice that I think women and men perceive the same differences. We've got to think about that as well as behaviour if we're going to solve the problem. That's me for now. Men, aren't they clever? <laughs> Our final speaker is Afwa Hirsch.、Um, she's the social affairs and education editor of Sky News, and we can't run over tonight because she's got to race to be on air live on、um, Parliament Green at 8:45 for a story about whether or not the government is banning the face veil in schools. She's a former barrister, and she was both legal affairs and then West Africa correspondent of the Guardian. And so she's had、um, a lot of experience of being at the forefront of traditionally male occupations. Afwa. So I struggled to self-identify as a feminist when I was growing up. I'm a feminist, but unlike many, just for the avoidance of doubt or awkwardness.、Um, Unlike many of the young women I speak to today, who, and I think we're going to talk about the branding issues around feminism later, who say, "Well, I don't want to burn my bra and grow out my armpit hair," that wasn't the reason I struggled to identify with feminism. The reason was because when I was at school, there was a book in our library about feminism. I was raised by a feminist. My mother definitely identifies as one. There was a book in my school about feminism, and it was about 30 pages. It was kind of like feminism for beginners. And every single image was of a white woman, except one. There was one page which said African women, 
And there was this woman, and I'm not exaggerating, with her breasts hanging low, some beads around her waist, a pot on her head, and it said something like, in Africa, poverty is as much an issue as women's rights. And it wasn't the only thing. I'm giving you that as an example that really clearly stands out in my mind. But I think that many black women who are feminists, who are passionately committed to equality, are intimidated by feminism as it currently exists because they perceive it to be in conflict with the equally pressing issue of race and ethnicity and the inequality that exists there. And I could give you so many examples, one of which, I'm a mother and I live in Wimbledon, which is a very affluent and non-diverse part of London. And there is a Facebook group for Wimbledon mums, and every single person on that Facebook group is white, but that makes sense because Wimbledon is not a diverse area. And one of the issues that the mothers in Wimbledon feel incredibly strongly about, rightly so, I think, is the sexualization of children, especially girls, the pressure to conform to unrealistic sexual ideals that we all see in the media and in music. And this Facebook page had a whole list of white mothers who were kind of ranting about this. And the only images of black women on this page were pictures of Rihanna, practically nude, And she had become, for them, the symbol of everything that is degrading and toxic and threatening for our children, our innocent children in this society. And what really struck me about that, and I see it replicated time and time again, is the perception that you can have a feminist struggle, a struggle to raise girls and everyone in society with notions of fairness and justice and equality, but that black women are slightly separate, or they're part of the problem. And... The reason I find that so unacceptable in this space, talking about feminism, is because we are supposed to be concerned with equality and justice and recognizing oppression. And I believe that symbolically, if you see feminism as something that affects women and black women or non-white women as a separate thing, potentially even in conflict with that challenge, then you're undermining the very essence of this cause. Recently, a new political party was founded, the Women's Equality Party, which I think is a brilliant thing. I don't know if anyone is here. And I know some people who have been involved and who've been energized by this, but one thing, and this isn't to single the party out for criticism, that I and many of my friends noticed when it was launched was the absence of black women from the launch. And I know that the party has reached out to black women and sought to include them, but what concerned me was the idea that it didn't start with that voice, The idea that you can start something without that diversity, without representing the range of women's views, and then add it later, to me, it's absolutely fundamental. It's not an add-on, it's not an option, it's not an extra. Um, Sheryl Sandberg in Lean In talks about if you run a marathon, if you imagine that men and women are running a marathon, and the men, everybody's saying, go on, go on, you can do it, you can do it, how much that would affect their mindset. And that the women from the starting line, everybody's saying, oh, I don't know, you, your children might suffer, you're being a bit selfish, I don't know if you're going to make it to the end, you might need to drop out when you start having kids. You can imagine the difference in performance if those messages were constantly being programmed to the men and the women in the race. Well, imagine the black women in the race who are also being asked, as I frequently am, well, how did you get the job here anyway? And where are you from? How long have you been in the country? It's, you know, for somebody who was born here and who every single job I got, I applied, I interviewed, just like everybody else, you'd think. It's an extra layer 
of illegitimacy, of questioning, that undermines your confidence, your sense of entitlement to be there, that you're good enough, that you're there on merit. I think it's something that we have to address, that we have to integrate into all our discussions about feminism. I'm a journalist. I work in TV news, which is one of the last industries where I think it's regarded as acceptable to discriminate against people based on how they look, if you're a woman, because we all know that very different rules apply to men. In fact, recently a, a colleague of mine told me that she'd been told that she was eating herself off the air. Not at Sky News, but a similar broadcaster. Something that you could never imagine being said to men. There are really visceral challenges for all women in the media, and I think TV, just because of its nature, the perceptions around age and appearance and race are particularly poignant. Um, but the last thing that I want to say about that is that even though we have more female journalists, there are more women on TV, I still think there's a perception that when it comes to the serious issues, to politics, to security, to economics, that we revert to the safe pair of hands, and it's inevitably the white men. Inevitably. And it can't just be about getting more women around the table. It needs to be about getting women from a diverse variety of backgrounds who really represent the range of the female experience. Thank you, Asha. I want to... In this part of the discussion, we're going to develop a little bit why we have gender inequality. And I want to turn to you, Anne-Marie. Having heard Helena's perspective, which is that she believes that actually there are innate differences which dictate inequity in every society, do you think that's something we can overcome? Well, I need to hear more of the argument. We, we can have a little bit more of Helena's argument. You can ask her what, you, yeah, what I, you'd I, like to know more about. I mean, it, um, are I, you saying these differences... Can, can't be overcome? Um, I'm saying there are male-female differences. You're asking about overcoming them. I'm not talking about overcoming them. Males and females are different from one another. They have different life priorities, and they'll make different decisions about what they want to do if they're freely allowed to make those decisions. And you say that there's a problem of inequality. I think you're conflating equality with sameness. And you don't have to be the same to be equal. And men and women can find equality without any sameness whatsoever. Indeed, uh, there's some very interesting evidence. It was a paper published not long ago that uh, in the most liberal countries, the sexes diverge the most, not the least. There's this idea of a grand convergence as we get rid of, rid of sexism, as women become liberated, they, they will converge with men. They don't. They diverge more and more. This, Why? This is, because this is they, the Nordic evidence, isn't it? Oh, there's the Nordic evidence among others. But this, will you this, just explain a no, little bit this of that? Was a, no, the Nordic evidence is actually more specific. This was a grand survey of 55 nations, 55 very, very diverse nations across the world, and it was a study that looked in detail at all sorts of aspects of choices that people were making. And those in which the choices were least alike between men and women were those that were the least sexist, the most liberal, and the most democratic. So they, they diverged more. The more that women were given free choice, 
the more they did not choose in the same way as men. That's why it's absolutely fundamental not to talk about inequality when what you're really talking about is they're not the same. Anne-Marie, what do you think? So, again, I believe in biological differences, obviously biological differences, but I believe in lots of differences between men and women. I live in a household of three men, believe me. (laughs) And and I have two brothers. I mean, I, I believe there are all sorts of differences. So I don't think this is about sameness. But I also, both in my own life, as someone who has chosen... I'm much more ambitious than many men I know. Uh, I've made choices all my life that are choices that are closer to men's than to women's. But equally importantly, the sociological evidence in the United States of the number of women who didn't want to opt out of work, who were shut out of work because work would not accommodate them. If they had been allowed to continue working in a way that allowed them to be mothers, absolutely, they would have done so, but they weren't. They, were for, they, they had to make a choice. You either had to work full time and be, you know, as if you did not have children, or you had to take care of your children. And in that setting, absolutely, they chose uh, to take care of their children, but they, they didn't want to. And similarly, and this is the point that I don't think we talk about, that men actually also want far more time with their families, but can't get it because of sociological construction. And so I guess the question I'd ask you is, I grew up in a world in Virginia in the 1960s in which it was deeply believed that women were nurturing by nature and not competitive. And I was told, if playing tennis with a guy, don't lose your head and win. (laughs) Well, you know, women are plenty competitive. That was a social construction of what women's choices should be. And I think now we have a social construction of men as sort of all competitive and not caring that is equally constructed. So I guess what I don't understand is how your evidence fits with what we know about social construction of identity. We don't know anything like that about social construction of identity. There's, there's absolutely no evidence that that's socially constructed. I think one mistake that people always make about this is to think that this is saying women are not competitive and men are. It's just a comparison that compared to men, women on average, we're always talking about averages, we're talking about groups here, we're not talking about individuals. On average... Women, compared to men, are less competitive. And there are good evolutionary reasons why. And I can give you the reason in one sentence. Beginning 800 million years ago, when when sexual reproduction was invented, okay, give a man 50 wives, he can have children galore. Give a woman 50 husbands, no use whatsoever to her (laughs) reproductive success. So, yeah, but men... There are other advantages. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> I didn't hear what she said. Other advantages. A lot of fun. <laughs> no, just to finish that. So, men had to compete fiercely for mates. Women didn't have to. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Women had to be choosy about their mates. They didn't want to tie up their reproductive potential with somebody not worthwhile, with genes that wouldn't do any good. So men competed fiercely for mates. All the men here in this audience today are the descendants of the victorious competitors. The women are not. And so we're not saying that women aren't competitive. It's just that, on average, they're less competitive than men. And when women say that, I think they don't realize how damn competitive men are. (laughs) Men really are. They'll make any arena. The Guinness Book of Records was only full of men until they decided it had to be more gender neutral. It was actually (laughs) doctored to make it more gender neutral. I think now I'd like the panel um, each to give us um, a minute and a half on, given that this is the situation we're in, what should feminists be doing next? What's the next chapter for feminism, given that this is the problem? Anne-Marie, I think we're going to give you the floor, and because you're an American visitor, (laughs) we're going to give you three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I do think, I want to start by saying I do think we should continue with doing things like removing subconscious bias, right? The early waves of feminism, we focused on conscious discrimination, (coughs) laws that were overtly discriminatory, practices like the ones you described uh, that were overtly discriminatory. And we have moved to the point that most people in in these societies, in the United States and the UK for sure, uh, would not engage in the kind of overt discrimination they once did, but we still have an enormous amount of unconscious bias. Uh, and so there, there's important training there. There's important, you know, as I said, the still pushing uh, the advancement of women and, and noticing just how unequal we still are. But I do think, as, as I said in my opening statement, the equally important is understanding that when you have more women than men in primary and and uh, secondary and and college and increasingly graduate school and they're doing better and they're going into the workforce and they're doing extremely well in the workforce, that what is happening is that to, you know, invest in the, the next generation, there's sort of nothing more important, frankly, from a policy point of view. We are still assuming that that's women's jobs 
And we also want them to do men's jobs. And that is what is holding so many women back. So the next thing we do is to start focusing on the assumption that all workers will have caregiving responsibilities at some point in their lives. Either children, or if you choose not to have children or you don't have children, parents or spouses or other family members. It is the rare person that will not have caregiving responsibilities at some point in their lives, and we simply make that gender neutral. We simply assume that is an obligation of all human beings in the same way that today earning an income and being able to earn an income, being independent enough to support yourself, is a way we raise all our children. Our men, boys and girls. Nobody raises a girl today to say, no problem, sweetie, you'll just marry a nice man and he'll support you. Nobody that I know does that. Uh, and so we need now to start raising our sons the way we raise our daughters to say, if you're going to grow up and you're going to be a father, well, how are you going to fit together your work and your career, your, your work and your family? How are you going to balance those things? How are you going to support your wife in her career the way she's going to support you in yours? And how are you both going to raise your children? So we turn care into something that is gender neutral and something that is highly valued for society as a whole, for individuals, uh, and frankly, even for, for better workers. Do you expect men and women to end up making equal choices in that way? Do you think the men are going to say, actually, come to think of it, I don't want to be CEO of Pepsi, I'm going to go home and look after my ageing father? I think in the first place, both men and women, if they were on track to be CEO of Pepsi, are probably not thrilled about stopping that track okay. and taking care of their aging father. So I don't think either one is going to necessarily embrace it, but what I think now is the woman's forced into it uh, and, the, and the man is not by, by expectation. So yes, what I expect is that there'll be a range, there'll be an enormous range, and there will be people who absolutely want to be sort of on the nurturing side all the time, and there'll be extremely competitive people who will be on the other side. But I don't think that's a function of your sex. I think that's a function of who you are. Uh, and that different couples will make different choices. I'm more ambitious than my husband. He's no slouch, but we knew when we married. He's a professor at Princeton, He's by no the way. He's no slouch. <laughs> He's no slouch. But, you know, that's just, I'm born that way. I didn't, I didn't choose it. It's just I'm born that way. And so different couples will make different choices. But I absolutely expect that if men did not suffer social opprobrium for choosing to be with their children or with their parents, depending on their relations with their parents, they actually would make a much different set of choices than they're making now. And actually... <clears throat> I think in England it was really noticeable um, that when David Beckham became a father and started walking on publicly with his baby in front of him, it instantly changed the way that men felt towards you know, looking after <laughs> small kids. It really did. It was a tremendous role model. Helena, what would you do in this situation? What do you think people ought to do? Well... Um... Inequality is really a, um, a misconception, and so are the policies for dealing with it. Um, this idea of being unequal, it's just difference, and it's a mistake to assume that men and women want to do things in the same way. But if you're trying to push and forward a feminist agenda now, what would you counsel people who want more equality 
to do? Well, what to should the next stage be? Sorry, I just want to clarify something. I do not think men and women want to do it in the same way. Good. Okay. I, men parent, in my experience, quite differently often than women do, and women definitely work differently than men do. So I'm not suggesting they're going to do it the same way. I'm suggesting, and actually I think it'd be better for raising children if they, they had the different models of how you raise children. We think we know how to raise children because women have always raised children, but men do. Look at all the gay men that are raising children and doing it very well. But, so I don't think they'll do it the same way. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. Men and women do want to do things in different ways. Good. Yep. I'm glad we've got to that. So <laughs> <laughs> That's very important. And so we're not, want... trying, we're not trying to get a one-size-fits-all solution to the workplace and to the family. Okay, then we might look at what females prefer when they have the chance to choose. And that's, I think, what you were talking about with the Nordic, um, with the Nordic example. Um, that in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and so on, uh, women have very, very good support for looking after the children, etc., etc. The bottom line is they actually don't want to go back to work full-time in the way that women do in other countries because they have to. In the States, they have to go back to work full-time. In the Nordic countries, they choose not to, and they are really happier that way. That's a choice. Thank um, you, Helena. Can I just... Amanda... You, what should feminism do next, very briefly? Well, very briefly, um, I, I side with Gloria Steinem, who said, uh, you have to know the truth, even if it pisses you off. <laughs> so, what is the truth here? Well, the truth is that today, what I think we're talking about are that women need to have um, three things to have equality. They need to have agency, autonomy, and authority. That means they need to have the ability to make their own decisions, the capability to carry them out, and the control to be able to stick to them. The, the, the good news is that we've made enough progress in the 21st century for that to be the case. But the bad news, the bad news is that everything that we have achieved can be taken away, and history shows that again and again. In the 7th century China, women were the most liberated in the world. They had a female prime minister, a female empress. And they had a whole raft of legal protections. Wow. 600 years later, China is a divided country. Women have had every single protection, every single law that, that gave them access to the public space taken away. And foot binding, which has crippled them for life, has been introduced. Today we are facing that same kind of challenge. And the countries that do not protect women's rights are poorer, more unstable, more violent, and more culturally stagnant than the countries that do. And that is where the future of feminism lies. Wow. Afra, a quick recommendation for what you do next with feminism. A couple of things I'd like to see. You all already know my views about race. Um, but I think in terms of history, we've heard a lot about history, which I think is crucial. I, I would love to see the feminist movement not just acknowledge 
that black women are an integral part of feminism now, but also acknowledge more of the history. For example, we had the suffragette film. It was so disappointing that that film neither acknowledged the role that black people played in the women's equality movement in that period, and also some of the allegiances that were made between the suffragette movement and racist segregationists, especially in America. I'm not trying to cast blame. I think we need an honest appraisal of our history so that we can move forward, and that's not happening at the moment. Another thing I would like to see, since I'm hitting race, I might as well hit class, I would like to see feminism do more to acknowledge that not all women are aspiring to be the next CEO of Pepsi, potentially because they're not in the corporate world. And a lot of feminist books, to me, speak very much to a specific context that even I don't relate to, let alone women who aren't in as privileged a position as me. And I think that we still tend to see poor women as other and not part of this debate. As we heard earlier, I'm about to go and report, we were all having a lively discussion about this in the green room earlier, on the full face veil and whether it should be banned in schools. And I think that without taking a side on that particularly thorny debate right now at the end, I think that the question of what Muslim women in deprived communities do and the way it's dealt with is often not acknowledging their agency. And I think that they should be treated fairly as women in this debate. So I would like to see an inclusiveness, not just on race, but also on class. And I think that that is what we need to strengthen the feminist movement, because as long as too many women feel excluded or intimidated, this just remains an elite conversation. And I think that it's time for it to become much more than that. Daniel, I just want to discriminate against you by asking you to talk just for 30 seconds so we can get to some questions. (laughs) But I think you can live with it. I can live with it. Um, So one really specific thing I'm quite interested in at the moment, which makes me really crazy. A neighbour upstairs had a baby, is going back to her big American law firm uh, in London, has been told the classic thing, that if she comes back, she can only do the 60-hour weeks or nothing. I just think... I'm not allowed to swear, am I? But that is totally ridiculous. That's fucking ridiculous. The idea that a big American firm can't find, I say American, a big law firm cannot find a mechanism by which somebody, a woman or man, can come back and work, roughly speaking, the hours she wants to work, with or without the notice that she does. Defies belief with the organisational patterns we have, with the technology we have, and the thing which I really don't understand about it, and I'm, I'm, you know, perhaps you can explain to me afterwards, folks, would it not be advantageous for a law firm to say, we're the ones who cracked that problem, and you can tell us when you come back from whatever you've been doing, how many hours you want to work, for whatever reason, and we'll fix that for you? It seems to me extraordinary that that isn't offered. Anyway, could I try and fix that one? That would be good. <laughs> I think Anne-Marie can do that. No, no. There are law firms that have done that, but they do different kind of work from the other law firms. And if women do want to work in, in those ways, they choose the firms that do that sort of work. It's as simple as that. No, big law is actually falling apart because of that. As a law no, professor, I don't believe it. Um, could we, I'd love to take some questions. Um, we're going to take them three at a time. Can you please keep them short but fascinating? Um, Kate Grusing. Um, Given so many of the protagonists that have come up in this discussion are American women, be they Gloria Steinem or Amory Slaughter or Sheryl Sandberg, I'm fascinated, and yes, this is North American accent, for <laughs> Anne-Marie's perspective on where is America ahead of the UK and what could we learn to help our British women be more aggressive and competitive? Without being judged to be either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or it is ahead. Uh, Whoever's got the mic next? 
Hi, um, my name's Emily. Um, I just have a quick question in terms of what's next. Um, I work with brands a lot. I work for a brand consultancy. Um, and I'm just interested in the context of huge companies like Unilever, PepsiCo, who are really working on their social purpose and social missions. What do you think is the next step for brands? How can they help feminism be more inclusive? All the things we've been saying this evening. Thank you. Thank you. I just wonder what you think, whether one of the things which is next for feminism is to completely rebrand it and call it equalism, not feminism. Because many guys, especially younger guys, don't want to be called feminine. And somehow, I think it's a, it's a, it, it, there's a branding issue with that in that it, it, it feminizes men to think that they're going to be feminists. And I, I, I wonder what you think about that. Marketing is everything. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Maybe you've answered Emily's question about branding. Um, Anne-Marie, I feel this is, this is very much your territory. Uh, well, so, uh, yes. So, uh, just on the, on the first question, um, so, you know, Britain is ahead of the United States in many, many ways. Let's just start with the fact that the United States does not have mandatory maternity leave, right? We, we and Papua New Guinea... Let me just say that again. We and Papua New Guinea are the only two countries in the entire world out of 194 nations that do not think that when a woman has a child, she should actually have some time to recover from the birth and feed the child. Uh, so Britain's way ahead. But there is, the United States is ahead in terms of the number of women at the top. Now, part of that, actually, Helena said, you know, when you have to go back to work so fast, you stay in. Uh, and there, there are more women at the top, at the very top. And the U.S. and Sweden are tied for 22% women in senior management. But the Nordic countries do not have free choice by a long shot. My article was as uh, picked up in the Nordic countries as anywhere else, and they still think they've got a long way to go. I, I don't think that we want to convince British women to be more aggressive and competitive. I think actually the way, to, the way Britain is, is tackling this uh, is to say, look, you should be able to work part-time and still be on leadership track, right? You should be, that, that you make room for ways in which women and men can care for their children and then don't waste that talent. And then you'll have women in the pool. Uh, so I, I think the U.S. is doing better in some ways, but I'm not sure the lesson uh, is, is to be more, more aggressive. And on the rebranding, you, you, know, you've, you just stole my closing statement, so I think I'm going to ask you to wait. Uh, <laughs> okay. Amanda, you want to come in on that? Well, just uh, going to the point about hours, uh, which leads us to the next thing, which is childcare. And there is never going to be gender equality in the workplace until women no longer have to pay the work tax known as paying for childcare out of your post-tax income. That is one of the single biggest impediments to all women who have children, and I have five children, so I know whereof I am talking. Did anyone else want to respond to that equalism? Well, I, 
I was just going to say about the, the child... My own assumption, in, in households where men earn more than women, it's always seemed to me more natural that you should take childcare costs from the bigger salary, not the smaller one. Uh, and once it's you've done that... It's amazing how then, unnatural some relationships I know, are. I curious, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I did want to say, in terms of, of role models and, and the Secretary General of the United Nations, one of the things... So I take my kids to school every morning, um, and if I'm not out doing fabulous things like this, I'm back by six and bath them. Um, and I make sure I tell that to all of the young people and people I speak to, because I think it's really important that people assert that it's possible to be the director of what will be London's most exciting engagement space when it opens next year. So that's going to be... <laughs> without, without sacrificing family life for yourself. And I also think that we have to find ways in which um, uh, you know, women can take that role um, and, and assert their ability to do it too. It doesn't seem to me that it's an either-or. We have to have success models. The only thing as a neurobiologist, I would say, is that the categories that we're talking about uh, and the plasticity that gives rise to them is different at different ages. So I am quite protective, it seems to me. I think we should be quite protective of the environment which younger people, certainly up to the age of seven, eight, nine, when a lot of these categories are formed, are exposed to. And again, for me, the solution in Britain, and I will say this over America, is CBBS, right? I mean, the idea that there is a, a, a television station which has kind of thought a lot of this shit through seems like a really good idea. So on race and on gender and the way they're, prepared, they're um, uh, portrayed, I have confidence that my kids can watch that up to a certain age and they will be given... Uh, exposure to stuff like that. And again, as a neuroscientist, I'm pleased with that because they can do kind of what they like after the age of nine in these terms, but these categories are formed early. So I do think we have to be quite careful about the, the categories to which our very young are exposed to and their tokenism and equality or, or uh, equity in that sense seems to me quite a good idea as a prescribed notion. And I should say, Teletubbies was yeah. gender fluid. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> At least seven different sexes were ahead of the They were ahead of the transgender <laughs> issue. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> I'm going to have to ask the panel now to just tell us each um, in a minute or so, how do you, how, which is exactly the question that Dan was raising, really. How, how do you get all kinds of people on board with this agenda? The people in this room are probably already sold on it, but how do you persuade the women who think that feminism has nothing to do with them, which is 93% of the population, from what we know, 93% of the female population, and all the men who think that feminism is something which some weird women want to engage in, that actually this is in their interests? Um, and I'm going to start off with asking Helena to give um, her summary about how we convince people. Well, feminism began by opposing an injustice, women being denied choice solely because they were women. But this really admirable quest became derailed by an obdurate refusal to acknowledge that there are real sex differences. The good news is that a feminism informed by the Darwinian science of human nature, both male and female, reveals a very much more promising world. I'll just give you two examples. First, what constitutes success? Men and women have different life priorities. So why should male priorities, the pursuit to the top for money and power and fame, typically male priorities, why should they be the sole yardstick? Science illuminates why there are multiple paths to fulfillment, including the broader priorities that women in particular value. Second, what constitutes equality and fairness? Equality is not sameness. We shouldn't expect male and female choices to be identical. We shouldn't say it's wrong if they're not. Differential interests lead to differential trade-offs, and so to differential outcomes. 
These differences are not evidence of discrimination or lack of meritocracy. Fairness involves not denying difference, but understanding the consequences of them. So it's not sex differences, but sexism that should be challenged, and not science, but injustice that should be opposed. And just as a last point, science doesn't dictate goals. It doesn't. But it can help us to achieve our goals. It must. Because if we want to change the world, we first need to understand it. We don't try to build planes but refuse to understand aerodynamics. So how can feminism forge a fairer world if it lacks a proper understanding of how the sexes differ? Helena, thank you. We're going to have Afwa next. A big issue... I think, in why feminism affects everybody is mediocrity. There are a lot of mediocre men in senior positions, and I think it was Warren Buffett who said that I got off really lightly because I only had to compete with half of the pool of people who I could have been up against in my career. And um, I didn't respond to the questions, but in response to the great question about whether affirmative action is kind of reinforcing essentialist notions, the reason it's important to have women in the boardroom or in the control room is because if you are competing genuinely with the entire pool of talented people, you just get fewer mediocre people in senior positions. And that is to the benefit of everyone in society as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think that feminism, it does have a, an image problem, but I, I don't think it's just a question of changing the name. I think we need to look at the root causes, as I've said, why people feel intimidated or alienated by feminism. And part of that, as I said earlier, I think is being more honest about the history of feminism and being more inclusive about the future. I think a reason that men are to benefit from feminism is because... It's simple progress. When we're talking about hours, the the lack of productivity at work, the culture that we have, I think, everywhere in the world where you want to be in before your boss and leave after him, usually him, which I see all the time, it, it kind of destroys my soul to see young people spending their lives doing something for the sake of being seen at the expense of their productivity and their dreams. I think it's a damaging practice, and I think that women are the ones at the moment who are forcing that to change, and I think everybody stands to benefit from that. And finally, just in response to the question about what can brands do to help feminism, stop using women's bodies to sell everything, (laughs) period. That's what I want to Daniel? Um, I'm not saying that feminist problems or the problems that feminists focus on are the canary in the coal mine, but it, has, it seems to me increasingly that, that issues where feminism is alarmed, I think of perhaps women in tech particularly, um, give clues to situations which are inefficient and unjust and should be changed. So the reason we should care about feminism is because it's quite an efficient way of detecting suboptimal human behavior. The tech industry is struggling, it feels to me, to embrace what is human. Uh, and it, seriously, it, it, they're selling us problems, to, uh, solutions to problems that most of us don't have, like how to do sociability without eye contact. And part of that, which is essentially what we've been sold, and, and that's uh, taking place in a situation which has amongst the most horrifying figures in terms of uh, women in the workplace and their treatment. So I think feminism is something that should concern us all because it shines a light on things we could do better and to improve ourselves as humans 
we should focus on those areas. Thank you. Amanda, how do we sell it to everyone? Well, I think that is a key question, and it's what I want to address, which is, you know, what's in it for the men? And Lenin said, um, he said, the success of every revolution depends on the participation of women. And he's absolutely right. If you look at all revolutions going back to the French Revolution, it's when women joined the vanguard that the old order collapsed and a new order came in. But those very women who fought for change were always betrayed by the male leaders of that revolution. Always. Until you had a woman-led revolution in the 20th century. And why is that? That's because, on the whole, male revolutions, male-led ones, are about changing the power structure from one, one power level to the other power level. It's about oppositions, and that's it. Whereas when women fight for a revolution, they want to dismantle that power structure in order to bring in egalitarianism. And that's why feminism is good for men as well as women, because it brings in genuine equality. Gosh. How are you going to change the world, Anne-Marie? Uh, so I'm going to leave you with a few very simple prescriptions uh, in terms of what, what we can do. So we can stop talking about mothers and start talking about parents. Every time you want to say mother, stop. Say parents and children. Parents and family. Stop talking about daughters and start talking about caregivers, or in Britain, carers. Uh, Carers for parents, whether they're sons or daughters. Stop talking about fathers and start talking about earners or providers, both men and women. Start assuming that every, everybody, men and women, want some combination of the ability to invest in themselves and to invest in others. Everyone. And that all workers, all employees, will have caregiving responsibilities at some point in their lives, and a competitive, effective workplace, efficient, productive, will make room for that kind of care. And start assuming that investing in others is every bit as important and rewarding and valuable as investing in ourselves. And finally, I don't think I would call it equalism. I think egalitarianism is better, but maybe isms are not the way to go. What we are looking for is a world in which we don't assume everyone is the same, absolutely not, but a world in which our assumptions about who someone is and what they want and what they can achieve and what their potential is is not tied to their sex or their gender or their sexual orientation anymore then it is tied to the shape of their features or the color of their skin. And we've already got quite a lot of it, and we should fight for more of it. 
It's That's a great note to end on. I want to say thank you very much to all of the panel. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.